certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today, the court heard startling admissions of error in vital evidence from the murder scenes. Welcome to day 26 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo with legal affairs editor Tim Clark and forensic scientist <coughs> Brendan Chapman, who we, as well as our listeners, who... Uh, have plenty of questions for. But Tim, I think, can you just start us off by um, telling us a little bit about today? Today was about Kira. And just like when Jane Rimmer went missing, you were given a glimpse into Kira's private world through these forensic photographs. Yeah, that's right, Matt. So, um, uh, as you said, both when both girls went missing, the, the police swooped into action almost immediately. And obviously, Kira being the third in 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 the sequence, um, the macro task force was was up and running in you know in massive sense by then. So when when she did go missing, it, it became obvious today, and it has been obvious for for years that uh, the, the police were immediately on high alert. And today we heard from uh, Sergeant Alexander Wells, another forensic officer who was part of the WA police at the time and how he was tasked to go to the, uh, the Glennon's family home where Kira was, was living and to uh, take photographs, take uh, exhibits, evidence that might um, help in, in what was then a, a, a missing person's uh, case, and so those photographs were shown in court today, and they showed mostly Kira's bedroom, but also Kira's office where she'd just begun her work again as a lawyer. Um, they showed a car that that uh, police at the time thought she might have driven at some stage. But the, the most poignant and the most heartrending really were the, the pictures of Kira's uh, room in in her parents' house which uh, showed all the, uh, all the trappings of a young professional woman who'd uh, appeared, maybe had, had left for work in, in a little bit of a rush that morning, uh, clothes scattered on a spare bed, various pairs of shoes in front of the mirror, which she, it would appear she'd be, that she'd be tried on before she'd left for work, her hairbrushes, her shampoo, um, an international driver's permit, even a book that she was reading at the time, all frozen in time in these photographs that were taken hours after she went missing and, and now, obviously, we know hours after she was murdered. And what sort of items were taken um, from the Glennon household? Uh, all sorts of things. Um, as I say, books, clothes, hairbrushes, um, hair bands, friendship bracelets, um, some underwear was taken. Um, anything the police at the time thought might give them a clue and also m might give them a better picture of, of, of who Kira was at the time. An exercise book that she was writing in, uh, a, a wide range of things. And also some things that you might not think uh, on the list that was flashed up in court today 
um, fur samples were taken from the, the Glennon family dogs, for example. And then later on, we know that fibre samples were certainly taken at, from from various places, Mr. Glennon's car, Kira's office, um, other items within Kira's office and, uh, and, and other spots around the Glennon family home as well, which we now know were very prescient samples to take because fibres become so important in the case and, and, and have been and will be. And Brendan, you might be able to talk to us about this a little bit. How important are these kinds of items, hairbrushes, and I think also a razor was taken later and a toothbrush, how important are these in a case such as this down the track? Yeah, in, a, in a missing persons case where we have, um, have not yet identified a body or, or where the missing person is, um, one of the important things we need to establish is obtaining what we call a reference sample uh, for, for DNA particularly um, and we look to sources like hairbrushes, toothbrushes, um, hair bands, anything containing biological material of the missing person so that we can kind of get the ball rolling on um, testing them and establishing a, a, a DNA result for what we know is the person so when we do come to identifying a crime scene or any exhibits we already have that on file um, the opening stages of any investigation from a forensic perspective um, particularly are really dynamic we don't know a lot in the early stages um, and so we've got this constant flow of information that's coming in as detectives kind of pound the pavement so to speak and and find out information so we're kind of using our best uh, guess I suppose to try and capture as much information as possible in the early stages which is why we see detectives going to um, places like the, the Glennon house and and photographing it um, and collecting that evidence because until we get a picture of what's happened it's it's always important to know the last movements of the person and as you said Tim kind of that frozen in time imagery that you've seen in in the court today helps us with identifying the last movements of the person um, and my my esteemed criminology criminology colleagues will will talk to you about establishing victimology and all that sort of mm. um, stuff which is outside of my um, expertise absolutely is it also standard practice that they would collect items from other people who live in that house to exclude them in any way or just so that they have those items as well yeah depending on the circumstances um, in a family home like this sometimes you can have the compounding um, issue of people actually share DNA there's, there's shared um, parts of the DNA from parents and siblings um, so that can certainly help in, in collecting um, evidence from other people and particularly then and, and as we've seen with this case with respect to fibres uh, from people around the, 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 the missing person. So is it a case that the more samples of someone's DNA you have from multiple sources the better and clearer and concise a picture of their DNA you get? Not necessarily. Um, we could take one hair and get the entire picture of someone's DNA. But we don't want to go to their house, interfere with their family 
and come home with one hair and have that not work and then have to go back and intrude again and again and again. So if we, and hair is one of those um, sources that can be highly uh, variable in its ability to recover DNA. Um, so if we take a number of sources, then we, we hopefully guarantee not to have to go back and, and get another sample. Tim, so Gary Hyde uh, was back on the stand. This is the um, former senior constable who you heard from yesterday. Mm. What did you hear from him today? Was he under cross-examination? Yes, he was, Nat, and for uh, for most of the morning, actually. So uh, Sergeant Hyde was, was, again, forensic officer, um, was part of that team along with Rob Hamilar and others, uh, and in, in particular was uh, was tasked with taking photographs um, uh, and uh, handling exhibits um, over quite a long span of the investigation, spanning as far into it as, as 2005. As we mentioned yesterday, it was, it was in 1999 that he was tasked with packing up some critical exhibits that were then sent off to the US and then in 2003 and 2005 he was tasked with uh, uh, counting them back basically getting 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 the boxes opening the boxes up that contained these critical exhibits to check that they were all there and what 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 sort of state they were in so under cross-examination this morning Mr Jovic began sort of maybe pulling at a few strands of, of Mr. Hyde's evidence, Mr. Hyde's processes over the years, and just pointing out basically some discrepancies in uh, recording things, labeling things, uh, and as we've said previously with other other witnesses, just maybe Mr. Jovic trying to roughen up the edges of the of the neat and tidy prosecution case that uh, that they want to uh, they want to present. And uh, he was he, he was relatively successful in that. I've got to say, Mr. Jovic, he, he did basically get uh, Mr. Hyde, uh, Sergeant Hyde, to admit that uh, at times he had made errors in terms of uh, labelling things, um, in, in terms of uh, times that were logged on various things, uh, exhibit numbers, and those type of things. But. I've got, I've got to say, in, in terms of the handling of those critical uh, exhibits, particularly the hair samples um, and the bags that were opened or not opened in this in, in the in the in the main case, which was of Kira's ma- mass hair sample, the, the bulk of Kira's hair, um, uh, Mr. Jovic didn't or couldn't uh, find that uh, Sergeant Hyde had done anything that might be uh, deemed. Uh, you know, way way beyond the pale, or or potentially catastrophic. So uh, there were a few little holes holes uh, punched in the prosecution case, but 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 no major blows landed. If I was going to put it that way. So there was talk, as you mentioned, there was talk about the bags and the opening and closing of bags. Did mm. he say that he had? Um, opened a bag and specifically opened a bag all the way through to a sample or that wasn't the case there was bags in bags and yeah so that, that's correct Matt so this is Kira's what they refer to as her hair mass so this is the bulk of Kira's hair that was um, removed from her body during the post-mortem um, and, and, and placed in an evidence bag that was had a particular label 
AJM54, and then that label changed down the track to VW1, and that that's what it then became. And that was that that was the label. That's that's the the letters and numbers that you will end up referring to a lot in the in the weeks and months to come. That VW1 sample, as as I've explained, was sent over to the FBI and also sent over to Canberra and the AFP and they and they both did some testing on that. And then when it would return to Australia finally in 2005, it was Mr. Hyde's job to open up the box that that hit that sample was in and to check its it that it was actually there obviously and what sort of state it was in. And what we found out today was the hair sample was in a bag, which was then inside another bag, which was alongside two other empty plastic bags, which would appear to have had been used in, in some process along the way. And Mr. Hyde explained how he was tasked to remove the two small empty plastic bags by opening up the big bag, taking them out, and then resealing it. But it was established pretty much beyond doubt that he he never went any further than that and didn't touch the main hair sample in, in any way, shape, or form. I guess it sounds, I mean, it sounds to me almost a little bit haphazard that there's these empty bags inside these other bags. Mm. Brendan, is... Is there a really clear process for putting things into bags and keeping them separate? It's it's a tough one because you, you have to consider that in the first instance when an exhibit is collected, um, and I'll use an example of a, of a hair mass, um, you, you have an exhibit that is given a unique number, let's just for argument's sake call that ABC1. Now, that exhibit is not a single part. Um, And so when later examinations of that exhibit are done and say single hairs are pulled out for testing or single hairs are taken to another place or there's things found within that exhibit, um, often the case is to create then a sub-sample of that exhibit. And one of the main... One of the key things we do in forensics is to ensure that every forensic exhibit has a unique identifier so if we've taken something from this imaginary exhibit ABC1 we need to allocate it a new unique number and so that's why you're seeing this kind of the best way of explaining it is parent exhibit and child exhibit if you could imagine it almost like a family tree where as new things are investigated, new um, sub-exhibits are coming off the exhibits. Um, and that's where they take on kind of this new, this new life. The other side of that is that independent agencies, be that policing, be that laboratories, they all have their own internal numbering system so that they can differentiate samples and they take subsamples of subsamples. <laughs> and so you, that, this is how we're seeing this um, one exhibit now referred to by multiple numbers. Yeah, I mean, it's something that yesterday we were talking about and, and saying trying to follow the numbers can be quite difficult, but that's a, a great way if you picture it in your mind as a, a family tree. Um, it lets you think quite clearly about where they all come from. 
Uh, yeah, you, I mean, it's a great analogy, Nat, and, and probably one that I'm, I'm now going to steal off you, Brendan, and <laughs> use in my subsequent reports. You're welcome um, to. Because, <laughs> because uh, as I've just explained, the, the original, what we'll take here is here, for instance, because that's what we're talking about. The original one was AJM, which was the initials of the police officer that was actually um, taking the exhibit, and then obviously 54 was the the... the sequential number that it was added to but then it was uh, as i've explained it was it was relabeled vw1 as brandon's just explained a subsample of that here was then taken so which became vw1a which we'll also hear about there was k1 which is another subsample taken by the fbi and then uh, there's a completely different here sample rh17 which was the pristine sample taken at the the site so at the burial site so you will uh, the listeners will hear us refer to all these things as we go along but uh, it's a great way of thinking about it that that they are all um parts of the same um same here um and eventually the prosecution will attempt to bring that all together and say all these different samples had critical fibers on them that all prove from various points uh, of the compass and points of the of the timeline that these fibers were all there um, at the critical moment when Kira was killed. And Tim, you mentioned one of these um, samples, the one which travelled overseas. And Brendan, we had a question relating to this from a listener yesterday who actually wanted to know the process of that. Does somebody accompany the sample on the plane or is it put into a parcel post and, you know, sent to the UK or to the FBI? In, in most cases, it's actually physically accompanied by someone to go with it. Um, that's the best method of maintaining that chain of custody because as soon as you pass something over to the hands of, I suppose, a, a company or, or a, a freight mover outside of policing and outside of a government agency, you're in introducing a new level of, of doubt there. Um, and that's why we, we do things that way. Yeah, and as we discussed yesterday, now, in, particularly in, in the case of the fingernails which have the DNA on it, allegedly, um, we know because Ms. Barbara Gallo has out, outlined it in the opening that it was Laurie Webb from Path West, accompanied by a, dete a senior detective that uh, that uh, that uh, physically took those uh, critical fingernail exhibits with them uh, on their person to the United States um, in specially uh, forensically sealed packaging um, uh, to basically, hopefully, uh, from the prosecution point of view, ensure that continuity. So those two people will also obviously have documented it and then will be called in person to testify about how that process was undertaken. Tim, you mentioned earlier that there were some inconsistencies um, by Gary Hyde. He admitted in, in some of the ways that he'd recorded the samples and what have you. Can you explain what some of those inconsistencies were? Were they in the transcribing or in the, in the property tracing systems? Yeah, um, actually both of those things, Nat. So when Mr Hyde was at the uh, at one of the crime scenes, it was his job to basically write down 
or he was the what they call the scribes, and he um, uh, w- w- was documenting on site uh, when an exhibit was taken, uh, giving that giving that a number, uh, giving that a time of when it was taken, and a brief description of of what it was. Um, the the main item of, that was of interest to Mr. Jovich today was actually a, a, an insect nest that had formed um, next to Kira's body. Um, when he when he wrote that down originally um, on on the exhibit list, he said that it would ha- had been found above or over Kira's body. But he, Mr. Hyder described that he'd actually had an injury to uh, to his hand, and so his his handwriting wasn't the best. And so his practice had become that he would take the original um, exhibit list on site, as as was the protocol. But then he would try and neaten it up very soon afterwards, usually the next day, by writing it out again uh, in in a be- in a better handwriting and probably in a in a in a in a, in a more uh, a cleaner environment, if you like, and not not at, at the scene of a, in, in the you know in the hot bush uh, with a with a decomposing body there. So, and it was pointed out to him today that when he was transcribing this particular insect nest, that that the information had changed. He said it, 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 it had gone from being above the body to next to the body. And what Mr. Jovic then extrapolated out from that was well given how long ago this was you basically had to rely on that information to then create your witness statements and to give your evidence in court this week and his point was well if that information is wrong at the source point then what's to say it doesn't become incorrect all the way along and mr hyde had to concede well yes i am i'm human that was obviously a transcription error. He said he would be absolutely sure that the, the, the description given it on the day at the site would have been the right one and that he had, he had inadvertently transcribed it um, differently the, the following day. But Mr. Yovich was making the point, well, you know, it, it's, it, it might seem like a little little thing, but... Uh, if you're relying on that information then to provide statements to the police in very high profile murder investigations and trials as this now is then uh, that could could become an issue brendan in terms of the actual evidence itself it does seem like a minor detail either beside the body or next or above the body are minor details like that important in some cases they are um but in other cases, they can just be completely trivial. Um, in an instance where you might be talking about an injury, for instance, um, really quite important where the positioning of the like injuries or wounds are, um, and that's what, why forensic pathologists, for instance, use a very particular type of language in explaining um, areas on the human body and, and injuries and the like situations like this where next to above unless there is a story that goes to explaining how that you know works against a defense case i can't see the relevance i can't see the importance yeah 
And what about this idea of how it was transcribed at the time? Have processes changed? Is that still the same thing that would happen now? Or would someone have a, you know, an iPad and would be punching in information? Has that progressed? It's still best practice to actually make handwritten notes. Um, You'll find that most people can do it quicker. Most people can actually take down more detail in, in making handwritten notes than using a tablet or or a keyboard. Um, It's not to say that we aren't introducing or haven't introduced um, technological advances to crime scenes, but there's there's value to the the indelible nature of pen and paper, its its permanency, the fact that if I make a mistake, I can cross it out, correct it, but the mistake still remains. It's not it's not deleted and, and never known of, which is which is some of the issues you have with um, a technology-based um, example. Um, the other thing is, if we're using computers, you've got to consider that crime scenes are often remote, and so a computer system that's using any sort of network connection, um, it, it, it will may suffer. Um, drop out from signal and all, all of the stuff that we kind of get frustrated with our, with our phones just in going about our normal business. Um, the other concern with some of the technology approaches are that the security of these devices um, and this kind of black box nature of, of an iPad that you know on, only Apple really knows how to, how to access that and how to get into it. So can't go wrong with a good old pen and paper and this is stuff that I, I t- drill into my students uh, is that you need to take great contemporaneous notes you should be making really detailed notes because in a situation like this where you're coming back 20 years later they are your refresher you have to consider that some of these guys that have been doing this for 20 years have been to tens of thousands of of homicides they've done this job tens of thousands of times and it's a it's a real it's almost an unreasonable expectation for them to remember every every aspect of what they did on on a day 20 years ago i think school teachers around the world are probably applauding you to hear (laughs) that there is still a place for handwriting (laughs) as opposed to ipads and technology um tim after the transcribing, then um, Gary Hyde was involved in the property tracing system. Can you talk to us about um, that part? Yeah, so that's that's uh, involves the 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 technology that Brendan's just been talking about, actually, mm. and uh, and the WA Police had had a system um, which allowed them to then log in. Uh, all the exhibits, give them a unique identifying number, and then that would enable the police, obviously, to be able to keep track of where they were, who touched them, um, and when, uh, and and for what purpose. And Mr Hyde's uh, evidence today was along the lines of several other police witnesses, in fact, all of the police witnesses, who basically said that the, the property tracing system at the time was 
very very rudimentary uh, it was it was clunky to use it didn't allow them to uh, uh, it didn't allow them to have proper descriptors for the evidence that they were logging uh, and it, it it basically restricted them in 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 doing their job um, because they because they weren't um, given the freedom to uh, log everything that they might want to log about these uh, about about these pieces of evidence, um, then they felt that that the, at, at sometimes their 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 hands were tied. Mm. What were some of the um, errors that you heard about today? Going to that uh, PTS system you had to one of the requirements was to put a quantity of 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 what exhibit you had taken be it be it a, a hair sample a, a sock sample or a or a watch sample and and in this case there was a watch that um that mr hyde had placed into the property tracing system but for some reason the quantity had been put as four which was was a clear error uh, because there weren't four watches there was just one and in, in another case um a hair sample had been had been placed in the pt in the pts system but the quantity had been put as zero which obviously couldn't have been right because if you didn't have a hair sample you wouldn't put it in the pts system um at all so once again they were human errors which obviously we all make all the time which then become exaggerated and 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 possibly a little bit inflated when looked back on uh, in the context that we're looking back on them now uh, and again it if i'm going to make a judgment call i would say not not a critical error but certainly an error and and one that, that mr yovich will uh, use uh, as as one of the many grains of sand that he hopes will, will he'll be able to put through the hourglass at the end of the case um, to show um, some reasonable doubt. Brendan, we might go to some of these questions we have for you because there have been a lot of them in the past week. And when we spoke to you last time, you gave us an overview of how procedures should take place during a crime scene examination. We since heard that back then, 1996, 1997, there was virtually no protocols for cross-contamination, not examination, um, and that the officers were wearing the protective gear mostly to protect their own clothing or themselves. So what are the risks um, if police enter a crime scene without booties, without gloves, without protective gear? Yeah, gloves are an interesting one because gloves have, have a a multifactorial use I suppose in a crime scene they are predominantly firstly to protect you from any disease or anything that can harm you know the the actual person wearing them the other two factors that are that are involved with wearing gloves are firstly for fingerprints because they provide a barrier against your own fingers from depositing and contaminating I suppose a scene with with your own fingerprints um, and then, of course, we ha- also have DNA, which, granted, in in the mid '90s, was n- not hugely understood in forensics in Australia. Um, in fact, it was the mid '90s that DNA legislation was starting to come through in the UK and the US, um, and we followed 
shortly after that in the early 2000s with DNA legislation here in Australia. Um, so gloves, I mean, there always was a consideration for fingerprints, but then you have to consider if you're picking up or touching exhibits that aren't likely to be a good receiving surface for a fingerprint. I'll use an example of a tree branch um, that I can understand why that consideration wasn't there. Um, other protective equipment such as booties and kind of the disposable coveralls that we see now um, as, as the practice can also come with their own um, issues as well is that some of the booties depending on the makeup of them can actually get scuffed up and, and leave behind or, or introduce fibers and, and things to a scene themselves um, it's all it's all a matter of best practice at the time and I think we heard this week that um, best practice at the time was actually using um, some sort of solution to scrub boots um, which which is probably just as equally effective as, as booties. On In Tuesday's podcast, Tim uh, revealed to us this um, really something he had never seen before and, and we had never heard of it and this was the uh, officer who had taken this hair sample of Jane Rimmers and shampooed it and given it to the family. Is that something that would happen nowadays? We were, we were quite surprised by this um, evidence? I'd most likely say no. Um, it's, we've, we've come a fair way since then. It's not to say that there's not acts of compassion that people feel compelled to, to do. Um, forensically, once the examination, post-mortem examination has been done and, and that hair has been cleared, I suppose, um, we're at a stage there where the body's going to be released to a funeral home or, or back to the family anyway. So I guess it does seem a little bit odd um, and it certainly is, is a talking point, but forensically I don't think there's any real concern with it. So there's no necessarily great concern that that, that part of the hair... Um, is now had this forensic detail that's that's gone missing really because the whole examination would have taken place yeah i suppose we'll never know um and that's that's the sort of question that they probably want to introduce um from a defense perspective um but i've got pretty pretty good faith in karen margolius's work i actually worked with her myself um a number of years ago that if she determined that that hair could be handed off and was clear of any evidence that she's she's made a judgment call on that. And having worked with her, I guess you would know her better than um, a lot of us. And I, and and I guess the thing was, it did seem like an extraordinarily compassionate thing to do, and that's I, I guess what it was. And and that was Karen. She she was a really like lovely, beautiful lady, and um, it's it. It's entirely the sort of thing that she, she would have done. Yeah. Um, we had questions that we were asking amongst ourselves about the knife that was found um, near the location of uh, Jane Rimmer's body. And we haven't heard anything about any DNA being discovered on it. If something's in the open for a period of time, something, you know, metal, 
Um, would DNA show up on that later if there was any, or would the elements have washed it away? It's such a random thing that it's it's in, impossible to categorically say. Um, if there was DNA on it, there's certainly a huge range of things that can affect that. That can be weather, that can be moisture, that can actually be what sort of makeup the the knife is. Um, there could be particular um, there's particular metals that can have an, a, a degradative effect on DNA. So it's it's impossible to say that because there was nothing on it, does that actually mean anything? Um, because there may have never been anything on it. We're working on the assumption here that it, it was used in the commission of an offence, but we really have no idea. Yeah. We have a question from Douglas Brook. Um, he asks, were both samples, that of Undercura's fingernails and the shorts from the Karakata rape victim, tested at the same time in the same lab because the link was suspected or were they tested separately? Now, I know you won't an know the answer to that exact question, but in a generic sense, would they be tested together if they were, if one was being brought out of storage and one was being tested, would they still be kept quite separate? We, you have to consider a, a modern DNA lab is, is, is very similar to say a pathology lab they're getting in thousands of samples a week um, and we've heard you know historically about the, the thousands of samples that get processed for dna here in wa um, so samples all come in and, and it's kind of like saying to someone that works in a pathology laboratory oh did you test john's sample and mary's sample on the same run and people will in inevitably say I, I have no idea we have paperwork that we can go back and check as will a dna lab they'll have paperwork that they can go back and check but all of these samples kind of funnel into a laboratory through um like a, a receival point or a century central entry point and then they kind of become these faceless tubes that just then go into the lab and these tubes just uh, are identified by, say, a barcode number or a unique number of some sort. There's one of those numbers again. Um, and then they're just lined up in a rack and they're just processed one after the other after the other. Now, what sits in that rack in front of any given scientist on any given day is anyone's guess. There could be two samples from unrelated cases on that same rack. However, it's best practice in any forensic laboratory to minimise the chance of any sort of crossover between those. So we exercise cautions along like things like ensuring that only a single tube is ever open at the same time. We, we do things like ensure that if we have to transfer something from one tube to another that there's a second person that might check that or sign for that or, or watch that um, or, or check that there's no transcription errors. So while there's always scope, I think, as I said last week, there's, there's a huge number of checks and balances put in, in place to, to mitigate any sort of issue that can happen there. So I guess the short answer is it's entirely possible that two samples sat together next to each other, but the, the chance of those being cross-contaminated should be very, very, very low. And I'll just jump in there, Nat, just with a couple of little factual things about that question. Um, 
it's it's not the actual shorts of the Karakata victim that that provided Mr. Edwards's DNA. It was the intimate swabs that were taken from that victim by um, Dr. Barnard, who we heard from uh, earlier in the week. So it was it was that those swabs that were then had the DNA extracted out of them, which was then tested and, and came back positive for a male. Uh, a, a, a male provider of that sample, which then turned out to be Mr. Edwards. Um, so, if if the listener has a, an image of these shorts lying on a bench, and then and, and then this this DNA sample sort of lying next to it on a bench, it certainly wasn't that um, uh, that uh, scenario. And just going to Brendan's point then about um, the tubes not being opened at the same time, I was actually rereading um, the opening statement today, um, just brushing up on my DNA because I knew that Brendan was coming on. And uh, Miss Barbara Gallo made the specific point that when the DNA was being extracted from all of um, Kira's fingernail samples, so obviously 10 of those were taken or labelled, um, only one of those tubes was ever opened at the one time so they didn't have all 10 on the bench sort of lying there all open at the same time there was they, they extracted one piece uh, opened one tube extracted did their did the procedure to get the dna off it closed it up and went on to another one so um this this we know, we all know this this contamination point is going to be is going to be the major major point when when the dna evidence um comes up um and Obviously, those processes at Pathwest will be absolutely uh, forensically examined, if I can, if you pardon the pun. And Brendan, is it the scientist who, you know, I guess at the end of it all, sees that match and goes, oh, I've got this and hands that to police? Or is all the information passed on to police and police then, you know, plough through it and see that match? Uh, the, the scientist does the interpretation of the results and and identifies the link. So the, the John Smith matches the sample from Crime Scene B um, and they then provide that in a report to the police. Well, thank you um, very much. It's a fascinating field and we thank you for your expertise and helping us um, plough through all that. Thank you, Tim, for your time in court today. Pleasure. Email us at claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au. For more exhibits and any more information, you can go to thewest.com.au. We'll be back tomorrow for Day 27 with Ali and Tim to wrap up Week 6 of Claremont in Conversation. Join us then. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and The West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.